0: Rural hospitals need strong talent, people who are committed to their work, committed to their patients, and committed to their community. But recruiting from outside in poses a greater challenge in rural environments than in non rural environments. So, how do rural hospitals build their own talent pipeline to advance their teams from within?
1: With financial assistance, a clearly defined career ladder, and supportive encouragement.
0: I'm Rachel Lott.
1: And I'm JJ Hotchire.
0: And this is Rural Health Rising.
1: Welcome to episode 57 of Rural Health Rising. I'm JJ Hodshire, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital.
0: And I'm Rachel Lott, Director of Marketing and Development.
1: You know, Rachel, recruiting has never been a hotter topic in healthcare than it is today. Uh, hospitals across the country are plagued with staffing shortages, and we hear about it every day. You cannot open the emails, you cannot listen to any type of podcast without learning of the struggles that healthcare is experiencing right now. In addition to the recruiting of these new staff, you know, advancing the staff we already have, we feel is a key strategy, uh, particularly in rural healthcare.
0: That's right. We are actually speaking with someone today who has herself climbed the education ladder, uh, so to speak, at Hillsdale Hospital, constantly advancing her skills and credentials to get where she is today.
1: That's right. Our guest today is a good friend of mine and someone I've worked with here for well over a decade and have known even before coming to Hillsdale Hospital, Sarah Butler, Director of Behavioral Health Services and our nurse practitioner right here at Hillsdale Hospital. So welcome to Rural Health Rising, Sarah.
0: Uh, Thank you. It's great to be here. So to start, Sarah, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your work here at Hillsdale Hospital today? Because we will get into the backstory in a little bit. Sure, no problem. Uh, I was raised
2: here in Hillsdale County. I graduated from Pittsford High School in 2001. I started working at the hospital just three months after that. Um, I'm married. I'm raising three small children here in Hillsdale and, and love the community.
1: You know, I so saw I had the first chance to meet her when she was in jail. Um, <laughs> and let me qualify that statement. Uh, I was the assistant sheriff of the county, and Sarah was actually providing jail services as a nurse to my inmates. And so I always knew, you know, here's here's a very talented, caring, I mean, you're willing to come into the jail and uh, do that type of service and ministry. It was a person who, you know, I have been able to follow throughout her career, and it was very proud to be able to sponsor her for education, which we'll talk about in just a moment. So now that we've established who you are uh, and what you do, Let's start with the why and we do this on every episode so we get to know our guests just a little bit better So Sarah, I'm gonna ask you. What is your why? What motivates you and what gets you up out of bed in the morning?
2: That is a very easy question for me to answer Anytime that I talk to somebody new or I strike up a conversation with somebody and I tell them I work at the hospital, they say, oh, what do you do? And the second that I say I work in mental health, they're instantly turned off. Mm-hmm. They don't want to have any sort of conversation mm. like it's over. There's yeah. such a huge stigma. There is. Um, I can almost guarantee that every single one of us either has cared for somebody with mm-hmm. a mental illness, has a family member with a mental illness. Yes. Or has a mental illness yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, on the unit, we have cared for absolutely brilliant people. We've taken care of doctors and lawyers and professors and nurses, corrections officers, every single person that is a productive member of society and and carries on with their life, but it's not okay for them to have a mental illness. It's okay for them to get help if they break their leg, or it's okay for them to help if they have a heart attack. But the second that you're not okay mentally, there's a huge stigma. So I wake up every day to fight that stigma for these patients.
1: That's remarkable, Sarah. And I think, you know, look at history. Uh, We know some very famous people who have suffered from mental illness, right? Absolutely. We can name several of those individuals, and I I think you know one of the things that you've been able to do is you bring a a sense about you, uh, you know, to this topic where it's not threatening. There's no stigma attached. You're you're real, and I think that's been very powerful for us. Um, Once medicated, you know, these are individuals that return properly, you know, to their community. They function highly, Uh, and so this is, I think, a mission, right, and a calling.
2: Absolutely, I can. I won't lie when I say I've been called Nurse Ratchet more than once. Um, so <laughs> that movie back then did not put a great stigma on this. It did. But did, right? Um, but yeah, absolutely. It's it's still something that we fight even today. Yeah,
0: yeah. I was gonna say movies seem to uh, really perpetuate that. They do. And when you think of an inpatient behavioral health unit, in particular, even more so than any sort of outpatient behavioral health care, it is this vision of a dark. And, you know, muted tones and people in wheelchairs staring out the window with no cognitive function apparent in any way, shape or form. But that's not really what you do. So, Sarah, before we get into some of our other questions, now in your role as director of behavioral health services and as a nurse practitioner, What does that work look like here at our behavioral health unit? So we have a very small unit. We only have
2: 10 beds. It's adult only. We have, you know, seven groups that run throughout the day, helping with coping techniques and stress management and relapse prevention. Every day they meet with a clinician, whether it's myself or the psychiatrist, um, figure out, you know, how you're feeling, how are your medications doing. The average length of stay for us is four to seven days. You're not incarcerated in an inpatient locked unit for 30 days. That's Mm -hmm. just not how it is. Um, It's enough to get them out of their crisis mode to where they're no longer suicidal or psychotic, depending on what their symptoms are, and then we can, you know, step them down to a a lower level of care.
1: You know, it certainly is, uh, when I say mission and passion, I I firmly believe it is. And so, you know, and and I know we're not here to talk about mental health services, but I think it's important to touch on because it really has defined what you have become in your career. And we'll talk about that journey here in just a minute. But, you know, we know that uh, it's a huge need in rural communities you know, mental health services, uh, behavioral health centers. Uh, you don't see very many of them in rural America anymore. They're, you know, no. it's very difficult to staff them. It's very difficult to find a psychiatrist, right? Right,
0: absolutely. Psychiatrist. J- J- difficult. you when... Uh, the first phone interview yeah. that we did, and you told me y'all had a you psych unit, it. and yeah. I said, "What? what? <laughs> I was like, What did you say? In
1: Hillsdale, Michigan? Yeah, I
0: was like, in at, at a rural hospital. Right. What are you right. talking about? I mean, I was shocked because yeah. it is so rare. It
1: is rare, and I, my colleagues around the state, when I talk to them about, you know, what type of services do you offer, and we talk about inpatient mental health services, it's almost non-existent. And you know, in Michigan, the the struggle, you know, and Rachel may not know the history in Michigan. But, you know, Governor Engler shut down the mental institutions that were state-sponsored and Mm -hmm. ran, and Mm -hmm. they they shut down. And that population who needed to be treated, medicated, and housed ended up in two places. They ended up in our jails, and they ended up in the emergency departments. Mm -hmm. And that's neither a place for them. It truly isn't. And we really have, for 25 years, not addressed this issue like we should have. And in mm-hmm. the stigma attached to it that you talk about, you know, a lot of our congressional leaders have have had summits on this because they understand the critical importance and the nature of it. So, you know, Sarah, I do want to thank you, you know, for that opportunity that you've brought to Hillsdale to serve this population. It's so important. Keeping a unit up and running because these are not units, Rachel, you know this, we talk about all the time. These are cost centers. Right. They're not revenue centers right. You know, when you start talking about behavioral health, we understand you know the relationship between the losses of finance and the gain of taking care of patients who mm-hmm. otherwise would end up in those two places.
0: So Sarah, take us through your journey here at Hillsdale Hospital because from what I am told, you started as a patient care tech and now you're both a department director and a nurse practitioner. Yes, that is correct. And I would like to say <laughs> that
2: I grew up always wanting to be a nurse and wanting to be in healthcare, but that is simply not the truth. I really didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. So I didn't apply to any colleges when I was in high school, and I was just going to enter the workforce and see what happened. Um, it just so happened that my mom had saw a advertisement in the newspaper for the TAP program. That's a hospital ramp program several, several years ago. Um, <laughs>
1: decades ago.
2: Like, Two decades decades ago. Two decades (laughs) ago. (laughs) Um, And so I applied to that, and I said, well, why not? I can work at the hospital. We'll see what happens. And I applied to that, and that program was not just like – nurse's aid work. It was also, you know, we learned like phlebotomy and telemetry reading and minor procedures. And we were a little more advanced than just a nurse's aid. So we got to do these other cool things. And then also in that program, everybody got an EMT license. Mm, so, that's so I got to do the ride-alongs with, with the EMS rigs, which was super cool. So that's how it started. And then after that program was completed, that's when I hired into the hospital uh, going on 21 years ago now. That was in 2001. And then, you know, the natural progression of that is to become a nurse. Mm -hmm. The hospital said, hey, if you finish this TAP program, we'll pay for you to go to school to be a nurse. I said, cool, I might as well do that. (laughs) She Um, really did say that. Yeah, I probably did. So um, that's kind of how that started. My nursing career started in, I passed my boards in 2006, and that's when I was the RN. You know, I had my associate's degree. I graduated from JCC at the time. It's Jackson College now. So that's how that started. And as I progressed, I worked in orthopedics. For years, for nearly 10 years. And since that unit was not always full, I floated to other areas. You know, I cross-trained to obstetrics and I cross-trained to ER and med-surg and CCU. And I cross-trained to all those areas, which was great. And then also early on in the career, as JJ said, I also um, set up medications for the inmates at the jail. And I also did home health nursing. Mm-hmm. So I kind of dabbled in everything, everything. just to see what I loved. Mm-hmm.
1: Supervision. You, did you do some supervision I here? I
2: did. After I finished with yeah. orthopedics, you know, I kind of got burned out from that. You can only pass so many narcotics and, and do so many blood transfusion before you're like, all right, show me something else. So after that, night shift supervision came open. And since I was trained, like, basically everywhere in the house, that was a natural step for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it was a night shift. Right. Which I loved the job, but my very small family did mm-hmm. not. Yeah. <laughs> so Tough. that's when... That's when there was a position that came open on the mental health unit about six years ago now. And I said, it's day shift. I like mental health. Sure. Let's yeah. go over there. So I was the manager over there. And it was not long, not too long after that where I decided, oh, I really do love this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to go back to school and and be a provider for these people and, you know, m- help educate them and medicate them. And so that's kind of how that progression went. I finished my master's degree and graduated in December of 2020. And I passed my boards in February of 2021. And I have been the nurse practitioner and the director of the unit since.
1: So let's dive a little bit deeper into this, because not everybody has it that together. And I don't know if you had it. Did you? You know, you may not have had it that together, right? You know, it sounds good. But, you know, let's talk about every time that you advanced in your career here at Hillsdale Hospital. How did you decide that you wanted to move up? And what steps did you take to do that? I mean, I know you had a calling and a purpose, but what what was the push?
2: I got to tell you, I will be honest, that this progression has taken me 20 years. Mm-hmm. You know, there are some people that can be that can go from an RN to a nurse practitioner in five or six years. Right. right. I was not that put together. <laughs> I When I worked on orthopedics for several years, I loved it. I just had a passion for everything orthopedic. And it was so, so great. But you eventually get this sense that there is so much more to nursing Mm -hmm. so that's when i applied for um i applied to spring arbor to get my bachelor's degree you know why not there was talk about magnet status and stuff like that um you know for the the other hospitals and so i approached the board and i said hey i want to go back to school and you're like cool let's do that so that's (laughs) when i you know i applied for my And I really did say that. I said,
1: cool, let's do that. It was
2: awesome. (laughs) Yeah, it's very...
1: No, I I think it's awesome when we see this kind of growth. Right. And you can hear it. For those of you listening, you can hear the excitement, you know, in Sarah's voice. And it's it's every day we get to experience her passion and joy for taking care of our patients.
0: Well, and it honestly surprises me that I didn't realize that you'd only been doing behavioral health for six years, you Mm -hmm. said. Yep. Because when... I think the first meeting we ever had up in your office just to talk about potential marketing needs related to your area, even though they're somewhat limited because of the nature of it, I just was like, I got the impression that this was all you'd been doing your entire life. You know, it seemed like you were like born working on that unit (laughs) and like caring for these patients because of the amount of passion you have for them and for for the mental health field. Um, But... Like you said, you had a young family throughout mm-hmm. your your journey, um, and you still have, of course, that family now. Maybe not as quite as young as they were <laughs> yeah. in the beginning, um, most, when you were much working more night shift
1: mischief, right?
0: That is correct. Yes. <laughs> so with that, you know, with your family, and you know, going back to school to advance your skills, not once but twice at least. Were you working full time each time you did that? Did you drop back on your hours when you were going to school and Also, did you feel like compared to people who maybe weren't simultaneously working in a hospital or in the healthcare setting, did you have more of an advantage in your process of getting your education?
2: Sure, absolutely. When I first started as a nurse's aide when I first got here, I mean, let's face it, I lived with my parents. I didn't have a ton of bills. Of course, I did not work full-time. Mm-hmm. You know, I was in my my early 20s. So I worked part time here at the hospital while I was going to school full-time mm-hmm. and got my first degree. And then ever since I completed my original RN is when I worked full-time. Mm-hmm. And I worked full-time up until most recently when the pandemic hit in 2020 I was in my master's program I had to finish my clinical hours and the hospital was looking to save as much money as we could at the time because we really had no idea mm-hmm. so at that on that summer there was about a 7 month period where I was able to drop back to part time so I could finish my degree mm-hmm. and and get things buttoned up so I mm-hmm. could finish that but other than that I've been working full time now Absolutely working in the hospital has given me so many advantages, even back when I was a nurse's aide, mm-hmm. going through nursing school, like I had already had experience with talking to patients and being comfortable assessing them and changing them if that's what they needed. And my best friend in, high, uh, my best friend in nursing school had zero exposure and she was absolutely terrified to mm. be at the bedside. I said, no, it's okay. So that really did help, you know, yeah. especially the EMT portion of that, where you have a little bit more uh, critical thinking as well. Mm-hmm. And then my last degree, my master's degree, absolutely being on the mental health unit and having knowledge of the mental health code and recipient rights and diagnoses and medications, that absolutely was super beneficial while going through my through my program.
0: So probably a very different experience for you than maybe someone who starts their RN or their NP right out of you know high school or college and goes straight into it without having a career first or simultaneously. I imagine that makes a huge difference. I think so. And it's not saying that they're wrong to go from, right.
2: you know, start with a bachelor's degree and then go right for your NP. But like I said, it's taken me 20 years and I just have so much comfort in talking to people that are mentally mm-hmm. ill or that mm-hmm. need help. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a really beneficial as all that experience that I have. Right.
1: You know, the journey, though, it's tough because I know, you know, while you did very well and you aced it, but, uh, you know, going to school while raising a family, working full-time. I didn't give you much slack. I mean, I still made you work, you know, and you had to fulfill that obligation. But it, it was rigorous, I would assume. And, you know, there may be someone listening to this podcast today that's thinking about it. What encouragement could you give them on that journey?
2: It has not been easy. And I have many a night where, you know, I finished my master's program with three children under the age of five. And there are many nights where they would fall asleep on the floor beside me as I'm finishing up my homework or, you know, we would go camping or we would go on vacation and I have to take my computer with me and finish up an assignment. And I'm sorry, I can't go play with you right now. I have to finish this. So children cannot be a barrier. Mm -hmm. You know, I have a very good supportive husband and family. But even though I was working very hard, the children always come first. So I would, you know, try to finish up things at night. Um, And anybody that's out there listening... If you really want something, mm-hmm. you're going to get older regardless. So mm-hmm. go, for it go for it if that's what you want.
1: Yeah. You know, I'll liken you to our good friend Rachel a lot here because, you know, when you talk about the struggles of life and work and, you know, there was – a Rachel's a workhorse and everybody knows that. And so when she was pregnant, you know, there was a thought in my mind like, Ugh, I wonder what's going to happen when she comes back. And, uh, you know, she pursues it. She didn't miss a B. She still takes care of her her, her son. Uh, she is a doting mother and a loving mother and she balances it. But even I would think you would recognize it's tough.
0: Oh yeah, definitely. And, and the
1: journey is is tough. But when you push for something that you live this, you breathe it, mm-hmm. Rachel. You you I see the same similarity in both of you. Yeah. That, you know, you've had the passion to make it work. Because it would certainly be easy just to say, We're done. We're going to give that up. And so for those listening today, be encouraged. You know, there's a lot of opportunity. And, you know, when when I reflect upon why we started this program, it was to highlight rural healthcare, And oftentimes, you know, I, I've, I've, I'm from Hillsdale, right? And you're from Hillsdale mm-hmm. County. Yeah. And, you know, that can be a disadvantage at times, right? And, you know, growing up here, Living here, going to college at Hillsdale College, and later going to uh, to get master's degree. You know, it's been uh, it's been really based primarily in Hillsdale, and uh, that journey is you know very limited. You don't get to go to California. You don't really fly off to too many places for your education or your training. So that journey, you know, can be somewhat stifled. But in your opinion, did you ever consider leaving? And and I'm not going to hold this against you. Hillsdale Hospital to gain additional experiences or or what was your thought process in looking maybe elsewhere you know was that ever on your mind
2: Oh, see, I hesitate to answer because the answer, I believe, for everybody is yes, absolutely. You know, you see these other hospitals that are offering these huge (sighs) sign-on bonuses, these huge wages. And, of course, it's natural for me to be like, oh, am I qualified for this position and to look? But to be quite honest, my job search does not go far because there is not a price that you can put on – Working in the town that your kids are going to school, you know, if I get a call from the school, hey, your kid's not feeling great, I will be right there. And, you know, if I worked elsewhere or had to commute, I could not do that. Mm -hmm. I would have to much rely on daycare and things like that. So I... There's also, you know, I don't have to commute to work. I live less than a mile away. It takes me 67 seconds to get to work, and there is there is not amount of money that you can put on that. You know, it takes you don't have
1: 70 seconds.
2: Oh, su- 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 we're, we're neighbors, aren't you? We're neighbors. <laughs> so, that's, um,
0: 60 minutes times 60 seconds. <laughs> See, yeah, and that's
2: that's not something ever I want. I don't want to drive on bad roads, uh, you know, 50 right. miles to work or anything like right. that. So, right. I I have to say my job search never goes far other than, hey, that would be cool, but. This is where my kids are. This is where I work. This is where I live. This is where Mm -hmm. I want to be.
0: That's a perfect example of why growing your own and building your own talent pipeline is so important because... Even when there are offers that seem more attractive on one level or another, Sarah is committed to this community. And that's why she is still here, because there's no doubt that there are plenty of hospitals that would love to have her. Mm -hmm. And we would love for them to not have her because we want to keep (laughs) her. But what you shared very honestly about, yeah, you've looked, but at the end of the day, this is the community you want to be in, this is where you're committed. That's the difference between trying to recruit, especially providers for you as a nurse practitioner from outside of the community and building the skills and the talent of the people we already have in our community and in our hospital.
1: Absolutely, Rachel. And I'm going to follow up on that because when I pushed the concept of a nurse practitioner for behavioral health, there was a lot of pushback. Mm -hmm. No one really understood the why. In fact, it was difficult to make the argument that we need a nurse practitioner in a you know nine bed unit Mm -hmm. that historically over time loses money Mm -hmm. and does every year and why would we want to add more cost to it but it's the vision of seeing where the market is going and Mm -hmm. number one we have a psychiatrist who we understand i know we we get in this mentality that doctors are going to be with us forever but they can't right we knew that there is going to be a time when the psychiatrist will walk away. And we also know that recruitment of psychiatrists is the number one most difficult recruitment mm-hmm. in healthcare right. among any other specialty, it is. Right. You cannot find psychiatrists. And that trickles
0: down to the entire availability it of does. behavioral health beds it across does. the country.
1: Absolutely. So for you know me, it was a push, I believed in Sarah, Number one, because I watched her as a manager and she worked with you know, our teams, HR, and she was a great listener and she held her staff accountable, but she also praised them, all the things that you want in a good manager. And so we knew that we had an investment in someone who, A, was going to stay around. Right. One of the biggest fears that executives have, we invest in a lot of education, but our return mm-hmm. on investment is quickly minimized when that person leaves. Right. And sometimes they leave well before the contract expires because you get them their education, they get the better offer. right? And so there is a gamble with that. But the reason we wanted to do this was we wanted to create a continuum of care that we could keep our unit, the behavioral health unit open. And so I would encourage any CEOs listening to this podcast, you know, these are the type of strategies that you should, you know, deploy in your facilities. You know, finding that psychiatrist may not be an option. So you may have to go to a telepsychiatrist psychiatrist model, which a lot of facilities and systems are across the country and so you however need someone on the ground Mm -hmm. you need someone in the unit that's a provider and those become what we call advanced practice providers apps which sarah is now part of so you know that's the encouragement that we would give now sarah i'm going to ask you know a closing question today someone's listening today and for you who've been through this journey for two decades, working your way from what we call a CENA, which at the time was a TAP, a technically advanced person, I think is what they called them. Uh, you worked your way through the education ladder. You've now pretty much, I would say, I don't think you don't want to be a psychiatrist.
2: My husband wants me to go back to be a doctor, but I no. Okay. <laughs> so well, no. I guess there is enough a, school for now. That's, right? that's not an option yeah. for me. <laughs> so
1: knowing your journey, the, the purpose of this podcast is, number one, to share with Rural America, you know, the types of programs that can exist in communities like ours. And this is one where you can have those important services to keep a population out of jails and emergency departments or unmedicated and unhealthy. So that's number one. Number two, it's creating the talent pipeline. Right. So. How would you, you know, as you've experienced and walked up your educational ladder, you know, what advice or encouragement would you give to others uh, to look who are looking to do the same thing?
2: Yeah, so some advice that I can offer, you know, like I said, I finished my master's degree with three small children, and excuses are just that. They're excuses. You have to be motivated and something that you want. I have very small children looking up to me as a role model, and that's something that I want to you know, show them you work hard and, you know, you get to do all these things and have all these things um, and, you know, have good support and a good supportive team. Something that I can say to the hospital is I have, I am now a psychiatric nurse practitioner and I have zero student loans. Every single degree has been sponsored by the hospital and I am committed to this place Mm -hmm. until the end of time. Mm -hmm. That is something, you know, you said you saw me as I was very young. When I first started here, I was 18 years old, and I'm just a kid. Um, And that's—and I just— Powerful. This is where I belong, and this is where—so my advice is just, you know, believe in somebody and Mm -hmm. offer encouragement. And you can't be disappointed if somebody wants to move up the ladder, although they're leaving a position vacant— There, there's future growth.
1: That is kind of mm-hmm. a mentality in healthcare, isn't it, right now? It,
2: right now right. it's tough.
1: We stifle the growth because we have an immediate need. Because we, we need, need you,
2: to, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I can't tell you how many people that I've seen over the many years come in and they use Hillsdale as a stepping stone for like their one or two years of experience. And then they go yeah. to a, a big city to not have, you know, JJ, you walk down the hall and you say hi to the housekeepers and you mm-hmm. say hi to dietary and Everybody knows everybody here, mm-hmm. and that's something so powerful. Mm-hmm. You know, I have family that has their healthcare at U of M for you know specialty reasons, and you are just a number. Yeah, and that is it. very true. Very so true. that's that's not something that you get in real healthcare, and it is so special.
0: So JJ, as a hospital CEO. Um, what would you say to your peers who might be listening uh, who are rural hospital CEOs or maybe they're in leadership or HR, um, any of those things, what would you encourage them to do to be able to encourage success stories like Sarah Mm -hmm. to come Mm -hmm. out of their facilities as well?
1: You know, Rachel, that's a great question because uh, right now the time has never been as tumultuous (laughs) as it's been in our history in healthcare, Mm -hmm. And CEOs are just trying to survive and so they're thinking about how do i compete with the next guy over in the county next to me with sign-on bonuses and Mm -hmm. with resilience bonuses whatever they are and so i would say take a step back from that because we know that we cannot this industry cannot sustain that for very long right it will go away there will be we won't be talking about bonuses in another year we won't no the market will level it out sadly because we have seen a lot of hospitals have closed. And as mm-hmm. Mr. Becker shared on this program, many more are slated to close. We don't want to see that. Right. So what we do is we talk about building your local talent pipeline. So we've worked with Michigan Works, which is a state agency appointed by Workforce the governor. Development. Workforce development. economic development. We've worked with all these partners, local community colleges, local college, to create mechanisms in place whether it's scholarship or training opportunities internships Mm -hmm. we created those to be able to provide hands-on experience so we can capture these individuals that are students early and then bring them into the workforce so after you got them in the workforce then the question is how do you grow them right and i think
0: that's the harder part it's sometimes it's
1: hard it's hard because once i have her filling a nurse position i have the chief nursing officer saying to me who did you can't take my manager away you don't understand we couldn't find a nurse you know manager forever and we well we have to grow and we have to accept that. Now it's easy for me to say that as a CEO, right? Because it's the nurse manager, the clinical uh, leader, whoever it is, who ends up picking that work up, right? But you have to want to be able to see the growth of your employees. Mm-hmm. And I've never stymied the growth. If if an, if one of my you know leaders came to me and said, I really feel compelled to take this job as a senior vice president of another facility, I I would be upset. Absolutely, would I be distraught? I I'd be upset, and I would though say to them it's an important move for you to move up into those areas and to gain that experience is so vital. And so I want that, I would ask that same perspective out of leaders, mm-hmm. you know, don't take it like I've got all my pieces in place and I can't move the pieces around because what's going to happen in three to five years, you're going to realize an outmigration through retirements or resignations. The pieces
0: are going to move the themselves around. The pieces are
1: moving, Rachel. They are. <laughs> and then you're standing there holding what? And so if you can promote within, I've always encouraged that. I think that is a, a very important tool. Um, you, I've watched Sarah for all these years. I know I can invest in her. I don't know the person, you know, two counties over who may say, I want to be sponsored. I know Sarah. Mm-hmm. Invest in your people. I think that is the most important thing that you can do. Sarah, once again, we want to thank you for joining us today. I can tell you, you've had a remarkable journey. Uh, your passion is second to none at this hospital. Uh, your clinical uh, acumen is amazing. Your ability to meet with our patients and their families, you know, in, in in an environment where it's hard, where judgment is often passed, where the stigma is so high, you know, you do it in such a manner where patients feel like they're being loved on and cared for because these are our patients, you know, and I, I, think, I want to thank you for what you've done for our hospital and this community. I know that the future, well, we just don't know. You know, we we've got some changes, uh, but I think we've positioned ourselves well through the education ladder that you've chosen to take and our sponsorship of it to position this hospital for success into the future. So thank you for your commitment and for joining us today on Rural Health Rising.
2: Absolutely. Thank you.
1: Before we close, we like to do a fun segment with each of our guests. So we want to know, and you've been a rule uh, you know, person all of your life. You've lived in Pittsburgh, Michigan. <laughs> what was the population of Pittsburgh? 80?
2: I I, I, don't know. I graduated like, with 64.
1: 64. Well, it's better than my graduating <laughs> class at Camden. But, uh, you know, w- we want to know what is your most rural, you know, unique experience um, or one of your fondest memories as it relates to rural living?
2: Sure. This is, this is easy because it sticks out in my mind. After I had finished nursing school and passed my boards, you know, I knew that I would be working on orthopedics. And I had cross-trained and I was prepared. But there comes a time where you are an RN and you're by yourself.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: so on the orthopedic unit, there's only one nurse on staff at a time. And so it was my first day all by myself. I was 22 years old, completely terrified. Of like, what if I forget something or what if I forget to do this or what if something and all the what ifs. And it just so happens my very first patient on my very first day as an RN was a very good friend of my father's. Oh my god! And I walked in and I said, "His name was Don." I said, "Don, I'm not going to lie, I'm terrified right now." And he says, "Oh, don't worry about it. You'll do just fine." And he was very supportive and very understanding. Although I was probably a white-faced, pale, Mm -hmm. and so and so (laughs) that after the first day and after he was so reassuring and comforting, I got through it. And then every day after that, but I will never forget my very first patient was a great friend of my father's. He grew up that with amazing. him. And so he was just so supportive. And and I felt very comfortable telling him, you're my first patient. I'm scared. And, you know, he, and he was okay.
1: I thought maybe the story would be uh, a young undersheriff sitting in his office hearing the rev of a motorcycle <laughs> so loud <laughs> that it disrupted the whole operations of the sheriff's office. Oh I gosh. mean, we're talking brumbling. Rah, 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 rah. And I walk outside. And I proceed, as I walk outside... I proceed to see a young lady get off the motorcycle, pull her helmet off, and she walks into my building as my new nurse. And that was Sarah Butler. And you were
0: thinking, what?
1: I was thinking, "What, what motorcycle group is this? What is it? But Sarah, you've had a remarkable journey, and I want to congratulate you for that. So thank you for sharing your story and your passion today.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll have another great conversation with another great guest, so be sure to tune in.
0: And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen, too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising.
1: And you can now find us on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO JJ. Rachel is at Rural Health Rach. And you can also follow the podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong.
0: Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, and a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. Hosted by J.J. Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. For more episodes, interviews, and more information, visit ruralhealthrising.com.